Lord Byron, Don Juan, Part 1. Today we are going to look at the dedication and Canto 1 of Lord Byron's most famous work, Don Juan. The word canto means a part or division of a poem, similar to Book 1. The word comes from the Italian and literally means, I sing. Don Juan is a long, rambling, episodic adventure tale, a picaresque adventure. Picaresque comes from the word picaro, which means hero. Don Juan is a kind of mock heroic epic. Sixteen cantos were published in the five years before Byron's death, the first two anonymously. But it was kind of an open secret that they were by Byron, and a seventeenth canto remained unfinished at his death. The tale features Greek pirates, Turkish harems, Russian armies, Spanish families, British highwaymen, and aristocrats. One of the interesting things about the poem is the presence of the narrator's voice. There are over 2,000 occurrences of I, the first-person pronoun, in the poem. This I both is and is not Byron. Commenting on the narrative, on the genre, on contemporary literature, poets, and issues. A few words about the poetic form. Throughout the epic, Byron writes in an Italian verse form called Attava Rima, which is an eight-line stanza using a kind of interlocking rhyme, which is common in much Italian poetry, rhyming A-B-A-B-A-B-C-C with a couplet at the end. And it is at the end of the stanza in the rhymed couplet that Byron sometimes throws in his zingers and delivers some of his most pointed satire. Byron's skill with rhyme is unparalleled, especially his juxtapositions for comic effect, which we are going to look at. And by the way, it is because of his rhymes that we know that Byron intended for the hero's name to be anglicized to Juan, because he always rhymes the name with words like new one or true one. Byron's Don Juan is a parody of the Byronic hero, so he's much more comic and lighter than some of the darker Byronic heroes such as Manfred. In the first canto, we will learn of Juan's origins and his sexual awakening at 16 by the married 23-year-old friend of his mother, and his flight when he's discovered by the jealous husband, which gives him experience, his first adventure, and establishes the reason for his exile, all delivered in comic, satiric, and sometimes biting tones. One of the most biting portions is the dedication, 17 stanzas of 136 lines in all. The dedication was not published at the same time that the first two cantos were published in 1819. The first two cantos were published anonymously, but because Byron's dedication so viciously attacks the poet Robert Southey, who was the poet laureate at the time, Byron did not want his attack to be anonymous. The dedication actually was not published until 1832, after Byron's death. 
Byron was enraged by some of the things that Southey had written about Byron and his friends. Southey had referred to Byron's circle as the satanic school of poetry, warning of its possible bad effects on the nation's morals. Southey had claimed that Lord Byron and Percy and Mary Shelley, along with Mary Shelley's half-sister Claire Claremont, had formed a League of Incest, an allegation that particularly offended Byron. So the dedication is Byron's way of getting back at Bob Southey, or as it is sometimes pronounced, Southey. In fact, Byron himself rhymes Southey's last name with the word mouthy. It begins, Bob Southey, you're a poet, poet laureate, and representative of all the race. Although tis true that you'd turned out a Tory at last, yours has lately been a common case. And now, my epic renegade, what are ye at? With all the Lakers in and out of place, a nest of tuneful persons to my eye, like four and twenty blackbirds in a pie. Here is one of the first examples of Byron's ability to rhyme by use of absurd juxtapositions. He rhymes laureate, Southey is the poet laureate, with what are ye at? And of course, the reference to the Lakers refers to Wordsworth and Coleridge, whom he satirizes here as well. Which pie being opened, they began to sing. This old song and new simile holds good. A dainty dish to set before the king or regent who admires such kind of food. And Coleridge, too, has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood, explaining metaphysics to the nation, I wish he would explain his explanation. That's an allusion to Coleridge's long and rambling Biographia Literaria, which is supposed to be an explanation of his poetic theories, but which Byron finds in need of explanation itself. And in the third stanza, Byron is perhaps the most vicious toward Bob Southey, with his sexual references that are no doubt extremely offensive to Southey. In the fourth stanza, and Wordsworth in a rather long excursion, I think the quarto holds 500 pages, has given a sample from the vasty version of his new system to perplex the sages, tis poetry, at least by his assertion. I like the rhyming here of excursion and vasty version, a very typical Byronic rhyme. But whereas Byron pokes relatively general, gentle fun at Wordsworth and Coleridge, he reserves his most vicious satire for Southey and some contemporary political figures. Turning from the dedication to the poem itself, Canto I of Don Juan consists of 222 eight-line stanzas for a total of 1,776 lines. In the first two stanzas, Byron is searching for a hero for his tale. It begins, I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every year and month sends forth a new one, till, after cloying the gazelles with cant, the age discovers he is not the true one. Of such as these I should not care to vaunt. I'll therefore take our ancient friend Don Juan. We have all seen him in the pantomime sent to the devil somewhat ere his time. 
The character Don Juan was depicted in a number of dramas, including the Mozart opera Don Giovanni. In the typical ending of these plays or operas, we see the womanizing Don Juan carried off to hell, where he will receive his punishment. This Byron also promises to do later on, although he never quite finishes the story. Over several stanzas, Byron provides a catalogue of various heroes he has considered for the protagonist of his mock epic, and then he finally says, I condemn none, but can't find any in the present age fit for my poem, that is, for my new one. So, as I said, I'll take my friend Don Juan. And then Byron goes on to satirize the, poet, the epic form. Most epic poets plunge in medius race, that is, in the middle of things, as the Latin is translated. Horace makes this the heroic turnpike road, and then your hero tells, whene'er you please, what went before, by way of episode, while seated after dinner at his ease, beside his mistress in some soft abode, palace or garden, paradise or cavern, which serves the happy couple for a tavern. This is the usual method, but not mine. My way is to begin with the beginning. And so, Byron's narrator proceeds to tell the story of Don Juan by first telling us about Juan's parents in Seville, Spain. His father's name is Jose, and he is a, quote, a true Hidalgo, free from every stain of Moor or Hebrew blood. He traced his source through the most Gothic gentlemen of Spain. Spain at this time, at least prior to Ferdinand and Isabella, was a truly multicultural society in which Christians, Jews, and Muslims coexisted, and this changed near the end of the 15th century when the Moors and the Jews were exiled from Spain. So, Juan's father, Don Jose, is of pure Spanish blood. Of Juan's mother, in stanza 10, we are told that she was a learned lady, famed for every branch of science known. But, of course, he soon proceeds to satirize her. In stanza 13, he says, She knew the Latin, that is, the Lord's Prayer, and Greek, the alphabet, I'm nearly sure. She read some French romances here and there, although her mode of speaking was not pure. For a native Spanish, she had no great care. At least her conversation was obscure. Her thoughts were theorems, her words a problem, as if she deemed that mystery would ennoble them. In other words, the Latin she knows is limited to the Lord's Prayer, and her Greek is limited to the alphabet. She reads French romances and does not speak her native Spanish very well. In stanza 14, we get one of those couplets where Byron employs his sharpest wit. "'Tis strange, the Hebrew noun which means I am, the English always use to govern damn. The Hebrew noun which means I am refers to Yahweh the ancient name for God, so the English only invoke God's name in the form of a curse. We find more about the character Jose in the next few stanzas. At the end of stanza 18, Don Jose, like a lineal son of Eve, went plucking various fruit without her leave. So he apparently had some lovers. 
In fact, there is some debate about just how many, because in stanza 19, we learn that the world whispered he had a mistress. Some said two, but for domestic quarrels, one will do. There is another example of one of Byron's most innovative and comic rhymes at the ends of stanza 22, when he writes, But, O ye lords of ladies intellectual, inform us truly, have they not henpecked you all? So here he rhymes the word intellectual with henpecked you all, surely one of the most unconventional juxtapositions in English literature. Don Juan himself is first described in stanza 25 as an infant. A little curly-headed good-for-nothing and mischief-making monkey from his birth, his parents ne'er agreed, except in doting upon the most unquiet imp on earth. Instead of quarreling, had they been but both in their senses, they'd have sent young master forth to school, or had him soundly whipped at home to teach him manners for the time to come. The marriage of Juan's parents is described in a fascinating way, beginning in stanza 26. Don Jose and Donna Inez led for some time an unhappy sort of life, wishing each other not divorced, but dead. They lived respectably as man and wife. Their conduct was exceedingly well-bred and gave not outward signs of inward strife until at length the smothered fire broke out and put the business past all kind of doubt. For Inez called some druggists and physicians and tried to prove her loving lord was mad. But as he had some lucid intermissions, she next decided he was only bad. Yet when they asked her for her depositions, no sort of explanation could be had, save that her duty both to man and God required this conduct, which seemed very odd. She kept a journal where his faults were noted and opened certain trunks of books and letters, all which might, if occasion served, be quoted. It is widely believed that the conduct of Donna Inez described here, such as the attempt to have her husband declared mad, is patterned after Byron's own unhappy marriage to Lady Byron, as the two had a very tempestuous breakup. Then Don Jose dies, leaving behind a lot of lawsuits and lawyers' fees. We're told that his house was sold, his servant sent away, a Jew took one of his two mistresses, a priest the other, or so they say. Don Jose's death leaves young Juan as his sole heir, with Donna Inez as Juan's guardian. The focus of the canto now turns to Juan's education, and we will take up this topic next time in part two.